section twenty eight of seven roman statesmen of the later republic by charles oman this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter nine caesar part four yet caesar had to hurry from risk to risk if there had been dangerous possibilities in spain those which followed in epirus were still more threatening some of the dangers were of his own making nothing can excuse the recklessness with which he flung his troops across the sea before he had transports enough to carry them all at one voyage it was no doubt an advantage to be able to cross the straits before pompey's admirals who fancied that all armies must necessarily go into winter quarters in november had begun to suspect him of any such intention but the compensating disadvantage of being obliged to leave behind nearly half his army for want of shipping was greater the second division could not follow him when the optimate fleet proceeded to blockade brundisium caesar had to maintain himself in epirus with seven weak legions and a handful of cavalry for nearly three months by land the superior forces of pompey held him in check on the side of the sea he was watched by the squadron which cut his communication with italy it was a miracle that he was not destroyed it required all his good luck to aid his consummate generalship once he thought that even his luck had failed him this was on the occasion when he made his celebrated attempt to run across to italy in a small open boat in order to hurry up his reserves at any risk and at all costs he got out to sea but his sailors could not face the storm in spite of his well-known adjuration to them to fear nothing for they carried caesar and his fortunes the vessel was beaten back to shore and the great general had to stave off apparently inevitable disaster for some weeks more till in the middle of february Antony at last succeeded in eluding the Pompeian fleet and coming over to Epirus. How nearly the squadron of the future triumvir came to disaster we have told in an earlier chapter. But after suffering the extreme of peril, he reached Epirus and joined his master. Even then the game was not won. There followed the long and well-contested struggle at the lines in front of Durachium, the most wonderful piece of spade work in the wars of the ancient world modern history has nothing to compare to it except the long contest in eighteen sixty four and five between grant and lee in their interminable entrenchments around richmond and petersburg which stretched out to even greater length than those of caesar and pompey but the struggle in epirus differed in one extraordinary point from the struggle in virginia here it was the general with the smaller veteran army who tried to enclose his opponent by running field works round his flanks and reducing him to starvation even caesar could not carry out such an astonishing plan he failed with heavy loss and pompey broke loose and seemed for a moment victorious it was perhaps the greatest of all caesar's military achievements that he succeeded in drawing off from his shattered lines without a fatal disaster but the moment must have been a bitter one to him it was his first defeat on a large scale and it was hard to see how it could be retrieved 
he had no base on which to retreat he had no large reinforcements to expect he was still cut off from italy by the pompeian fleet the sudden march into thessaly with which he ended the campaign round Dyrrhachium must have been the counsel of despair if pompey failed to follow him into the interior and chose instead to ship himself over into undefended italy the game was lost caesar had no fleet in which to follow his rival and it would have profited him little to take thessalonica or to ravage greece but once more fortune came to the aid of the great adventurer pompey refused to make the bold stroke and to sail for italy he followed his enemy across the mountains and offered him battle at pharsalus ruined by the misbehaviour of his numerous cavalry with which he had hoped to ride down the gallic legions he saw his army break and fly and rode off the field a ruined man pharsalus made caesar master of the world the game was at last in his hands and he had but to hunt down the scattered remnants of the pompeian party who maintained a hopeless resistance in the remoter provinces that the civil war lingered on for another three years was due not so much to the truly roman obstinacy of the surviving optimates as to caesar's inexplicable divagation to egypt there was no need to chase the forlorn little band which followed pompey down to the mouth of the nile but if the enterprise were taken in hand it was foolhardy to set out with but one single legion the east might have been safely neglected for the present the real objective for the caesarian host was africa the one region where the enemy had still a considerable force under arms if the victor of pharsalus had started at once to deal with scipio and king juba he might easily have finished the war ere the year b c forty eight was out five months of the summer and autumn were still before him and the news of pompey's hopeless disaster had struck terror into his foes but caesar chose to go off to egypt where he was busy for eight precious months on a trifling and unnecessary task which became difficult and dangerous mainly because he essayed it with wholly inadequate resources if he had taken three legions instead of one to alexandria there would have been no egyptian war the whole episode is unworthy of caesar the conqueror of gaul should not have placed himself in the position to be besieged for months by a levantine rabble and saved by an oriental condottiere like mithridates of pergamus still less should he have lapsed into his silly and undignified entanglement with cleopatra it was his alexandrian dangers and dalliance which allowed his adversaries in the west and south to recover their spirits and rally their armies if he had sailed for africa in august b c forty eight thapsus would have been fought eighteen months sooner and munda would never have been fought at all for southern spain only slipped out of caesar's hands after pharsalus had been won and if africa had been reduced in the autumn of b c forty eight the two sons of pompey would never have had their chance of recovering baetica and rallying all the last desperate adherents of their father's cause for one final stand in the west caesar owed it entirely to his own carelessness that he was nearly beaten by boys at munda whereas he had to confess for the first time in his life he was forced to fight 
not for victory but for his bare life in short it must be owned that during the latter years of the civil war caesar as tactician was as great as ever but caesar as political strategist was reckless and overweening he seems to have grown so confident in his own skill and luck that he did not take the trouble to use common precautions to turn all his strength to account or to take his enemy seriously indeed after Dyrrhachium and pharsalus all should have been child's play to him if it was not the fault lay with himself but at last after munda his crowning mercy as cromwell would have called it caesar found no more enemies to subdue and made his final return to rome he set out for the city in july b c forty five he was only destined to survive till the ides of march b c forty four of caesar as soldier we have said enough it only remains to consider him as the master of the world and the founder of the imperial system what are we to make of the few months of supreme power during which he was at last settled down in the city and laying the foundation for a permanent settlement of the roman world suetonius and plutarch have preserved for us a large number of details concerning his civil activity in these months one thing is undoubted it was pure autocracy and no mere modification of the republican constitution that he intended to introduce unlike sulla whose career was in so many ways the antitype of his own caesar had fought and conquered not for his party but for himself there was in fact no longer a democratic party the very name of party implies the existence of a body of persons who agree to act together for some common political end but the caesarians were nothing of this sort they were simply the hired servants of the dictator who humbly carried out his orders without any attempt to criticize or to understand them the one man of the faction who showed a spirit of his own perished miserably this was the headstrong caelius rufus who against his employer's orders raised an old democratic cry no tabulae, the abolition of debts and tried to carry out some of the anarchic designs which had been dear to catiline caesar was absent from rome himself but his agents saw to the suppression of caelius he was deposed from his praetorship whereupon he fled into the south of italy and raised bands of slaves and debtors in the true catilinarian style enlisting as his lieutenant the old optimate bravo milo the rebellion proved a fiasco and the rebels were destroyed by a regiment of gallic horse those who had joined caesar in the mere hope of plunder and proscriptions were thus warned that it was their master's programme not their own that was to be carried out those on the other hand who remained faithful to him were rewarded by huge gifts of money and estates sufficient to pay off all their debts but they were not indulged with the noai tabulae which would have frightened the equestrian order and all the capitalists whom the dictator was anxious to conciliate however disappointed they may have been at seeing that they were to be the well-paid hirelings of their leader and not his colleagues or counsellors the caesarian gang had to accept the position a vast amount of praise has been bestowed upon caesar for introducing good and firm government into italy when it had been expected that his triumph would be followed by plunder and proscriptions 
but it is only a savage or a man who has injuries to avenge who would deliberately choose to slay those whom he might safely spare or to destroy riches which he might safely utilize caesar was not in the position of marius or sulla he had not been hunted round italy by his foes like the former nor did he return to find rome red with the blood of his friends like the latter he had taken the city almost before a blow had been struck in the civil war and had no tangible injuries to avenge the hustling of his tribunes and his own outlawing would hardly have been made a convincing excuse for a general massacre indeed the leading optimates had evacuated rome and it would have been on men of small importance or on moderates like cicero that a proscription must have fallen again a general confiscation of property would have thrown rome and italy into chaos and bankruptcy but caesar wished to have as much money at his disposal as possible for the equipment of the great armies that he was raising clearly from the most selfish point of view it was wiser for him not to throw the financial world into a crisis and thereby to make enemies of all the capitalists who had not retired in the company of pompey there is no need to praise the magnanimity of one who acts from enlightened self-interest and this would appear to have been the case with caesar so it is also with his good government both in italy and in the provinces when once he had established his domination it was to his advantage that he should rule over a wealthy and contented rather than over a poor and disloyal empire there is this difference between the rule of an autocrat and that of an oligarchy that in the first case the ruler's individual gain is best secured by the prosperity of his subjects while in the second the personal interest of each member of the oligarchy may lead him to feather his nest to the grave detriment of the state because his legitimate share of the profits of empire is comparatively a small one it was in rome in caesar's day much as it was in france in the day of bonaparte the directory whom the corsican superseded were infinitely worse rulers than he because their personal interest did not like his coincide with the interest of the majority of the french people the change was undoubtedly beneficial to the country at large yet we do not therefore regard bonaparte as entitled to an enthusiastic moral approval any despot who is not a lunatic will adopt the same programme so far as he is able this being understood we may grant that the practical benefits conferred by caesar alike on the city and the empire were enormous if he had done nothing more than put an end to the turbulence of the roman streets by the institution of his praefectus urbi backed by armed cohorts it would have been a considerable boon it was something that he cut down the number of the recipients of the corndole though since he had posed as a democrat he could not abolish it altogether still better was to persuade as many of the citizens as possible to go forth to transmarine colonies but any successful despot must have taken all these measures to keep an armed force in the capital to endeavour to distract the energies of the multitude into colonization were devices as old as periander and dionysius as to the settlements inside the peninsula which caesar planned out for his veterans they do not seem to have been much more successful than the earlier attempts of the democrats agriculture in italy south of the rubicon was ruined beyond redemption 
as to the legislation concerning debt and luxury which the dictator introduced we cannot take it very seriously it was a case of satan rebuking sin his own licentious extravagance in his youth and the astounding loads of indebtedness which he had contracted prevented him from attacking the problem with any moral weight no man can be made good by act of parliament still less by the rescript of an autocrat a moral reformation in the governing classes of the state was the only possible road to reform and de caesar was not the man to start such a movement bad as was the general tone of the roman aristocracy in the first century b c it was to be worse in the first century a d servility to the omnipotent emperor was added to the other vices which they had previously displayed in short the caesarian laws were palliatives for the moment they had no ameliorating force for the future in the provinces there can be no doubt that the new monarchy was far more effective and benevolent than in the city the fact that the governors were made responsible to a wary autocrat instead of to corrupt law courts and a feeble senate improved the lot of the subjects of rome to an incalculable extent it was to caesar's interest that the provincials should be wealthy and contented and therefore the oppressive governor and the swindling publicanus had to be kept in check and punished the dictator did not himself live long enough to set the centralized system in proper working order but the mere fact that he had established a monarchy made the improvement inevitable the reforms of augustus were but the necessary corollary of his great-uncle's triumph it was the same with the internal organization of the empire caesar wished to rule willing rather than disloyal subjects hence came his endeavours to encourage municipal patriotism to open a roman career to prominent provincials he even made senators of many gauls and spaniards to develop new towns and to strengthen old ones by his numerous colonies all and more than all that he had planned was carried out by augustus and the first century of the empire was undoubtedly a period of material prosperity in the mediterranean lands such as had never been known in the days of the republican regime but it must be remembered that it was purely material caesar could give no moral impulse to the world the empire was a time of lost ideals because its founder was himself a man who had lived down or had never possessed any governing enthusiasm save that of personal ambition nations like men need an aim and an ideal to keep them sound the mere enjoyment of good administrative government is wholly inadequate to create or preserve real moral energy and it is hard to see what the roman of the empire which caesar created had to live for religion could not help him indeed it barely existed caesar himself was a sceptic his great nephew equally irreligious at heart served out to his subjects the archaistic revival of old ceremonial worship and the hollow cult of divus iulius in neither of them was there the least breath of reality the only moral force that existed for the subjects of the empire was the stoic philosophy which influenced but a few choice spirits and at the best was but a council of despair to keep the soul free and unpolluted if the body was doomed to servitude and misery it was a philosophy for the individual not for the state its ground idea was that the times were evil 
and that the good man could do no more than preserve his own self-respect in an empire which pretended to have restored the golden age the holding of such views was almost treasonable in itself where neither religion nor philosophy can serve to maintain a healthy spirit and a moral basis for society a vigorous national patriotism has sometimes served as a substitute but the empire destroyed patriotism it was cosmopolitan in its tendencies and swamped the narrow but very real devotion to the city which had been the main source of the strength of the earlier republic patriotism needs stress and adversity to develop its best features it almost presupposes that the state has dangerous enemies and aspirations that have yet to be fulfilled but under the empire the romans absorbed all their old neighbours and foes syrian and spaniard britain and numidian were all made romans of a sort there was no peril from the external barbarian for two hundred years the parthian empire was slowly dwindling in strength the germans had not yet learned to combine they might perhaps check an invading army but they could be no serious danger to the state in short there was no adequate object against which the patriotic impulse could be directed and it gradually dwindled away into a vague and unfruitful pride when external matters at last became serious in the third century after christ there is no trace whatever of any sense of national duty among the heterogeneous romans of the day the bureaucracy which the empire had bred and the professional army had to face the storm from the north without any support from the indifferent masses what more could they have hoped when the individual citizen was debarred from politics and invited to entrust all his cares to the divine autocrat who had superseded the senate and people caesar in short put an end to urban sedition and provincial misgovernment but he and his great nephew gave the world instead of its old anarchy a period of mere soulless material prosperity if the barbarians had never resumed the attack from without if christianity had never arisen to give new ideals from within the roman empire would have gradually sunk into a self-satisfied stationary civilization of the chinese type whether it be considered as a despotism or a bureaucracy it was a magnificent failure already by the end of the second century before the german attack grew dangerous it had lapsed into moral and physical impotence on the civil side it was over-governed and overtaxed on the military side it had developed a denationalized army which had begun to sell the diadem to the highest bidder it is hardly necessary to recall the fact that between the death of commodus and the accession of diocletian a period of no more than ninety years some thirty emperors not to speak of unrecognized usurpers and tyrants came to violent ends at the hands of their own soldiery the first caesar had taken the sword a clear majority of his successors perished by the sword what julius himself intended to make of the empire we can but guess he was cut off before he had made his intentions clear his plans we cannot doubt were still in the process of development when he was cut off by the hands of brutus and cassius he had enjoyed less than a year of complete sovereignty 
and was still in the stage of trying experiments probably he designed to take the name of king probably he intended to make his power hereditary for he had adopted his great-nephew octavian and had begun to train him as his heir and successor he was dealing with senate and people in the true vein of the autocrat to the one he was issuing undisguised commands the other he was beginning to ignore as a factor in the constitution probably his heir had read his intentions and we may interpret the plan of julius by its execution under augustus the dictator was always an opportunist who watched the times with a wary eye he had withdrawn his first tentative grasp at the diadem and was still wearing the imperator's laurel wreath when he perished but there can be little doubt that his purpose was deferred and not renounced he had still far to go when the daggers of the conspirators intervened and restored for a short space the anarchy which they called liberty yet if his work was not complete he had at least done so much that the republic could never be restored he had worked out to its logical end the movement which tiberius gracchus had begun which marius had continued which sulla had vainly striven to stem and which pompey had unwittingly furthered the problem of sovereignty had been solved neither senate nor people could rule the empire and the inevitable autocrat had taken over the powers which they had abused whither autocracy would lead neither he nor any of his contemporaries could have foreseen a new chapter in the world's history had been begun but no more than its opening lines had been written when the great dictator perished on the fatal ides of march end of section twenty eight recording by pamela nagami in encino california august two thousand and eighteen end of seven roman statesmen of the later republic by charles oman